This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see so many people here. And um, congratulations, Janine, and thanks for all the speeches and the welcome to country. Um, so um, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Gordon Quinn here, who is the co-founder and artistic director of Katemquin Films. Um, Carolyn's already done an introduction, so I won't repeat again. Um, my name's Kim Munro. I'm the conference programmer here at AIDC. Um, and in this session, we're going to um, unpack a few questions with Gordon around sustaining a career as a producer, um, as well as how a, an organisation such as Katemquin um, sort of exists for such a long time and continues to be vibrant and relevant as, as the industry changes, um, and how to balance business integrity and the craft of producing um, in yeah, the constantly changing landscape of funding and audience um, behaviour and preferences. Um, so I do also encourage you to use the app um, to ask questions and um, if we have time I'll try to fold some of the questions into the conversation with Gordon. Um, so just, yeah, if, you, if it's your first session you just add um, this session to your agenda and then you go in and down the bottom it's a um, vote or take a poll so, and I'll just be bringing them up. So welcome Gordon. Thank you. So let's begin with um, a bit of a snapshot of Kartemquen. We're going to um, play a bit of a trailer, which is, I think, really significant because it's, it's not only looking at the, the history of, of Kartemquen, but also has a, a vision to the future. So let's just roll, roll that um, trailer. Thanks. Do you want me to tell you a story? Yeah. Okay. Working a little experiment with film. Would you like to be a part of it? Sure, why not? See you later, Its commitment to artistic excellence in nonfiction storytelling, its leadership in the tradition of independent documentary, and its values rooted in social justice and democracy, Kartemquin receives an institutional Peabody Award. When you're an institution, you share an award like this with a vast number of people. And when you've been around for over 50 years, it's countless. I'm making this film because I saw myself in your own story. Wow, B. <laughs> There's a lot of noise in this world telling us that we'll fail, that we're too idealistic, but it's just noise. That was what was unique about the heat wave in Chicago. It was a natural disaster that revealed an unnatural one. We are at an historic moment where we as a city get to decide the path that we take. Our entire existence is resistance. I may never be known as a pianist, but that doesn't stop me from playing. Here's the sentence in the last page and the last line. Life is too short to be ordinary. Is there something we should be doing that would help you guys? Is there yes. something? Yes. 
you tell people that climate change is real. Me sharing my story to help other people is my justice. The more women run, the more other women see that it can be done. You aren't taught about this part on your body because your voice isn't heard in so many other ways. Was there something this taught you? Yeah. <sighs> that my voice matters. Thank you. Um, I, I, I noticed the, um, the, the giant gold clitoris there that you, has yes, been floating yes. around the, um, the, the party last night. I, I, I <laughs> took a picture with it and sent it to Maria, who has a film on a similar subject that we're premiering at South by Southwest. And she said, oh, you're cheating on me with a different clitoris. <laughs> so getting straight into it there. Um, so. Um, there's a lot to talk about, obviously, beginning, you know, like your first film was made in 1966, um, but I know you, you know, I, I, I heard you say something that, you know, like Katemkin starts where the, the action is, you know, rather than this traditional beginning, middle and an end. So I'm actually going to um, start with one of your, probably the, the film that you put you on the map and, and everybody would be familiar with, um, 1994, with the release of Hoop Dreams. Um, I'm sure everyone's sort of seen it, you know, like <laughs> a really significant film um, and quite sort of pivotal. So I wanted to just, um, just to go to another clip, just a really short clip, um, a moment in, in that film, which is yeah, very uplifting. So we'll just play clip number two, thanks. You know, when he won the game, you know, he told me he loved me. And then, you know, I, I haven't heard that in a, you know, you can feel it, but I haven't heard it coming verbally from him, you know. In a rematch with rival Westinghouse, Marshall proves to everybody they have what it takes to be city champs. Convincing fashion, 58-38 winners over the Westinghouse Warriors. All right, so how did you know Hoop Dreams was a story worth following? Well, Cartemquin uh, had been around for 20-some years, and by the way, it, it, it was three guys out of college. We thought it sounded like Potemkin. No one has ever got the reference. It's a Carter, a Temner, and a Quinn. Bad idea. Don't name yourself with pieces of your names. Uh, but these very tall guys had just graduated from Carbondale in downstate Illinois and walked into Cartemquin. And they had two things. They had a great title which is usually the last thing we manage to come up with in a documentary. 
And they had $2,500 that they had gotten from the Illinois Arts Council. And I often reference that as to how important, and it's a little different here, your political reality and where your film funding comes from. In America, it's a constant fight to make that public funding, to make the public sector uh, be involved in the arts at all. And so that $2,500 from the Illinois Arts Council, which is a state agency, was critical. It made me know they could write a proposal, and they actually had an idea for a different film about street basketball and kind of the joy of these young boys who play it and dream of being in the, in the NBA. And I would say within the first couple of months, they had evolved into the idea of following these two young men all through, all the way through high school, and the film had really changed to become an epic project that we had very little funding for. We really, one thing we don't, it's not possible for us to raise all the money and then start the project. Uh, we once had a film, Vietnam, Long Time Coming, which was funded by a single funder in advance, and we got the film done in less than a year, and I like to say to people, see if we have the money, we can actually do it that, that fast. Uh, but generally, we will start with whatever we have and then hope to raise the money uh, along the way. Um, I did, when, when Steve and Fred first walked into Cartemquin, uh, I said, look, guys, given what your story is, I think you need to find an African-American cameraman. They needed a cameraman, uh, and I had some contacts. And they came back with Peter Gilbert, who was already associated with Cartemquin and who was white. But he was as crazy about basketball as these two guys were. And I kind of looked at him, it's like, okay, this is the right group. So that's kind of how Hoop Dreams uh, began. I think the clip you picked is very interesting because when you watch it, every one of those shots watching that game is carrying a tremendous amount of emotion and information. William's not going downstate. He's the more, he was the one with the great future, uh, considered much more talented than Arthur, who actually got forced out of the suburban school that they'd both been in, that they were both recruited to from the inner city. Now he's back at a city high school, and he's going downstate. Uh, his father is there, who has been out of the family for a long time and using drugs, and now is back, and of course his mother. So it's, it's an example of the craft of what we think about, and so much takes place in the editing. I was talking with some people here in some sessions yesterday, and they were talking to me about, you know, they look at our, and they were hearing me talking about spending a year, two years in the editing. Hoop Dreams, we spent uh, over two years on the editing. And I'm always in battles with broadcasters and funders. They look at our, and they say, well, your editing budget is ridiculous. Nobody, and I'm like, that's where our films are so good. That's where we make our films, in the, in the editing room. And how did Hip Dreams really change the landscape of, of documentary and, and how it was received in public? I mean, it, it took off. Uh, we went to Sundance, and it, from there, the, the, the rest is kind of history. Um, we, my roots were in verite filmmaking, and that's how we began. But very quickly, Cartemquin evolved from these three guys who started a little film company and wanted to make 
uh, verite films like Leacock and uh, the Maisels brothers and, and that kind of thing. I, I, what got me into documentary initially was I saw Happy Mother's Day uh, as a student at the University of Chicago uh, and filmed by Ricky Leacock and Joyce Chopper and I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. But I think part of the reason we're here 50 years later is because we don't keep making the same films in the same styles. We're always paying attention to what's going on in the world around us. And I, I was struck by the welcome to country and that sense that first principles matter. Your core values matter in what we do because we're dealing with real people and real stories in, in the world. We're not just entertainment. And we've always seen documentary as having a role to play in a democratic process, in a democratic society, uh, to bridge the gaps between people and histories and kind of the, the issues that any democracy grapples with as it tries to, to live up to its best values. Can you talk, um, I know Hoop Dreams made um, a lot of money, and I'm just wondering how you address that as, as a producer, right. making a profit. Well, it, Hoop Dreams, and you know, in some ways Hoop Dreams <laughs> brought me back. I, I, I lost my train of thought there for a moment. But Hoop Dreams did bring me back to those verite roots. We had, within the first couple of years, Cartemquin was a collective. People came around, people from the women's union and uh, other movements became very involved in Cartemquin. Some were, had a media background and others had an activist background. Uh, and we were reading Mao, it was the 60s, we were gonna change the world. And so if you look at some of our films from that period, driving narrations, a, a verite thread throughout, we're following people's stories, but we're also providing a kind of Marxist analysis to, you know, like in the Chicago Maternity Center story, which did play here in, in Australia many years ago. I remember our being thrilled that our film was being shown, you know, on the other side of the world. And, you know, we're, we're trying to explain to people who are in struggle around the industrialization and, and the medicalization of childbirth, uh, you know, what the, what the battle lines are. And so we had gone deep into that direction and Hoop Dreams kind of brought us back to our roots because what we saw with Hoop Dreams when it took off, here was a film that was moving people emotionally that was engaging audience, we often talk, Ellen Schneider kind of coined this phrase many years ago, speaking beyond the choir. How do you get people to care about people that aren't like them? How do you get them to care about subjects that aren't like them? And what we saw with Hoop Dreams was we reached this vast audience of people who were drawn to the film because it was about sports, and it was about family, and it was about these kind of universal things. And yet, social issues and problems are all through that film. Many, many people watched Hoop Dreams who would never watch a film about a, quote, inner city family. Uh, they would, you know, a film about a social issue, they're gone. They don't want to be to deal with that. And so we realized here's a powerful way, using the emotional aspect of filmmaking to draw people in. Um, I think you said it made a lot of money, and it did. Uh, and I think something that we're talking about more and more, and, and uh, in my own practice, uh, the, for the last 10 years, I've been talking about documentary ethics. Because 
I was challenged by Pat Ofterheide, who spent some time here in Australia, and she's an academic, and, and she said to me, "Why you never talk about ethics. Why don't documentary filmmakers talk about ethics? And I was like, I talk about ethics all the time. And she was said, yes, but you don't call it that. And I realized she was right. And so our ethics are different from journalistic ethics. When you spend four and a half years, like with the people in Hoop Dreams, you have a different relationship with your public, with your subjects. And those ethical questions really come in to that relationship. And so when Hoop Dreams made a lot of money, we had releases from everybody and we told everybody what we knew because no film we'd ever made had ever made any money. There's gonna be no money. It just, you really shouldn't even think about that. Uh, but when they did make that money, we brought in the families, we brought in the boys. It was an incredible meeting in the storefront at Cartemquin where there were several uh, accountants and lawyers. The families had their own representatives in there. Uh, the people in their family who were kind of considered the one that could negotiate. And we came to an agreement where the, the boys were gonna make the same money that the filmmakers were making from the income stream. Uh, everyone who has a speaking part, according to some kind of formula that Steve kind of worked out, is want to get to get something from the film. And we had to keep that agreement secret for four and a half years. Um, we had a backdoor uh, opening to the NCAA, and we said, this money has nothing to do with the boys' basketball. It's because they're in this movie, and we want to be able to get the money to the boys and the families. And they were like, absolutely not. They'll lose their scholarships. You know, it was, we, we sort of were able to test that. And so we had to keep this agreement secret for four and a half years by the boys played out their college scout scholarships essentially on a handshake across the color line. Uh, and so I think we're, we're quite proud that that worked out. I did make one error, if you guys are ever confronted with this kind of question, which is I didn't put on an end date on it. I should have said 10 years. So we are still in a position where some of the people down the food chain are getting a check for $3.48, you know, which my accounting people tells us it cost us more to write the check. Uh, but we, I think these are important questions. You don't want people to be participating in your movie because you're paying them. Uh, and, you know, it's complicated. But we also want to be fair and just to the people who have sacrificed so much and who are really a part of what we do. Um, we are, we're not just telling their story they're taking us into their lives and into their story, and that has real consequences for them. So let's um, sort of jump forward a little bit. Um, on the back of the success of Hoop Dreams, you made uh, a series, The New Americans. So we're gonna just see a clip from that. Um, let's go with the Pedrito. Do you wanna just... Um... So this is a, a clip. We had a... We had some cachet when Hoop Dreams was over, and this was 20 years ago. And we knew that immigration was heating up as a topic in America. And we felt that somebody wasn't really a part of that conversation, which was the actual immigrant families who were coming to America. And so we wanted to tell their stories. And we had some key ideas. One was, 
when we, we looked at other work that is being done, and we found that a lot of them start at the border. They start with immigrants coming into the US, and it's almost like, what do you think of America? You know, And we wanted to start in their home countries way before they immigrated. We didn't, we're not just looking for subjects who are sitting there with their bags packed. We wanted people who were still living their life but planning to immigrate at some point. So the clip you're going to see is from our Mexican story, which was uh, directed by Rene Tajima and Angie Greco. And this was at a point in making the film when we had run out of money and Renee calls and she said, this man has been working in the US for 13 years and now he's gonna be able to bring his family across legally. He's finally got everything in place and it's happening. And Renee's like, we gotta go to Mexico and fill this. So I actually went with her to, to film this scene because we couldn't afford to hire another uh, camera person. So he's, he now knows this young boy, I, I think it's self-evident in the scene, he's saying goodbye to his classmates and he's coming into a world that he doesn't know. And we've spent a lot of time with them in Mexico. We've become connected to this family. We've seen their struggles in Mexico and the whole struggles around water and their inability to really make a living on the land that's their land. They're, you know, they're peasant farmers and, and it's, they can't sustain themselves anymore. a escribir y a saber una letra. Ay, Pedrito, ya. Ya. Muchas gracias, Marcelo. Adiós. Sí. Pues ya también me hiciste llorar a mí, mijito, de que te vaya muy bien. Espero que nos vuelvas a ver más. Sí, hijo, a ver cuánto vuelves, ¿eh? Amor, ya cuando estés bien grandote vas a volver, ya no te voy a conocer. Ándale, <risa> <risa> pues, que te vaya bien, mijito. A ver, vamos a darle un aplauso a Pedrito, porque ya se va. So I love that clip. It's one of my favorite all-time clips because in 90 seconds, it tells you what the theme of the New Americans was, was that we need to understand what these people have left behind. And there's a lot of subtle things, and it's, again, I think the wonder of documentary filmmaking. You don't have to say a word. You look at that school in this very poor rural part of Mexico, and you understand there's something of value in that classroom with that teacher. And that's, it's those kind of images that move me so much in documentary filmmaking. And I wanna show one other clip from The New Americans. We're running out of time, but it's, it's only 30 seconds. And I don't think I have to say, this is in America. It's the Palestinian story, and it's, uh, 
we've been following her for months in, in her home country finishing school. Now she's living her dream in America. She's engaged to a Palestinian American who grew up in Chicago, and he's decided to teach her at night why he t wants to give her a driving lesson in the middle of the night. I never understood, but it's a short clip. Stop. Stop. I know, but how do you, I know you're not doing anything wrong, but how do you see it? If a child goes to the So that's the other emotion that is so important to what it is that we do. Um, and you know, when I, when I teach or talk to people about, it's like, it was critical, this is before the GoPro, I went to a lot of trouble to get a camera mounted in the car so I could see their faces. So, um, I understand that what um, underpins Kartem Quinn is these principles of democracy, and that means making films with complex and difficult people. Um, and using that as a way to think about how we can live together in society. So let's talk about um, Stevie, which you say is one of your favorite or one of the films you're most proud of. And we're gonna see a clip from that, but can you just put it into a little bit of context before we watch that? So, you know, after Hoop Dreams, we did have some cachet, and uh, what Steve wanted to do was this film, Stevie, which was completely unfundable. We're all doing this kind of on our own, you know, with our own funding. And he's reconnecting with a young boy when he was a student. His wife was in social work. And he had been a big brother to this young man who had been abused as a child and was a very difficult kid. Now he's a 28-year-old young man uh, with a disaster waiting to happen, still in this very poor rural area where the school that he went to was located down in Carbondale. And while we're making this film about Steve's feelings of guilt and about this young man and his life, Stevie commits a terrible crime. He's arrested for molesting his niece. And so it became a very different film. And I was really struck by what Janine said, because that is one of our core values, which is these stories are complex and difficult, and we want the audience to both feel empathy for our characters at the same time that we have to tell the truth and hold people accountable. And that contradiction is at the heart of documentary filmmaking. So let's have a look at that clip. I want you to know, this is really important for me to tell you, is that I know what happened and I still care about you. And I know that underneath it all, you're a good person. This behavior was bad, it was wrong, it hurt somebody, it can happen again, and I wanna figure out a way for you to be in control of it so it doesn't have to happen again. I know you feel as bad about it as anybody. Watch it! I am. We 
went to a downtown club Patricia had wanted to visit since moving to Chicago. started drinking beer on the house I found out because of our filming. He then moved on to shots of tequila. forced Stevie to leave the club. He was pissed. I was pissed too. Tempted to leave him right there to fend for himself in the big city. But I was the idiot who'd allowed him to drink and stood by filming as he spun out of control. Back when I was his big brother, I had never thought of Stevie as a film subject. Tonight, it was as if that was all he was to me. So Stevie was a very difficult film. As we were making the film, Steve was ready to abandon the project at various points. The ethical questions were extremely complicated uh, that we struggled with. And some people look at that film and they say, oh, we don't like that Steve James character, you know, and we think he's exploiting Stevie and kind of what he's saying there. It's much more complicated in the whole film. And, you know, I always say, yeah, we know. We put that in the film so you could see it and have that kind of judgment. Um, the scene you're seeing, that's Stevie's girlfriend who's trying to get him to behave and to stop feeling her up on the, on the dance floor. And she was, she, she had suffered from uh, probably fetal alcohol syndrome. Her, you know, she had been born uh, with a mental disability. Um, and she's one of those characters where you're just like, Oh my God, the things that she says and the way that she expresses herself is just like, whoa, she's just right there and takes you into the emotional heart of the film. There's a scene at the end when Stevie has gone off to prison uh, where she's talking to Steve, the filmmaker, and it's just incredibly powerful. 
Um, just a, an aside, a, a detail. That little bit of song that you hear, Why Can't You? That's my one songwriting credit. Uh, this was done before we fought the battle for fair use in the US, and we, want, we won back our right to claim fair use, to be able to use things like in a scene like that. We would have just used, today we'd use the music that was there, and it was perfect. Can't remember exactly what the song was, but it so resonated with what was happening uh, in the scene. But of course, at that time, we wouldn't have been able to get the film in theaters, we wouldn't have been able to get it broadcast, uh, we would have been, you know, just really not been able to release it if we didn't have everything cleared. Uh, so I, we kicked around different things, and I was, oh, I got an idea. So, so that's um, there's a question here actually um, uh -huh. that is a little bit related, I think, and and sort of. I guess relates to sort of all the films that you've been involved in, is around access and um, just waiting for the iPad to load. Um, how, how much access do you have to, yeah, what challenges have you had um, with access to key, key people in the films and um, how much do you allow this to affect your story? Well, access is, you know, I mean, and, and when we're talking to people about pitching, you know, and, and like, what is it that you have to communicate to a funder or a broadcaster to get them involved in your project, you have to make them understand that you have the access or you have a real strategy for getting the access. It's critical. Um, I think for many of us, we find our most difficult access questions are actually with people who have power in the world as opposed to everyday people who are often very willing to open themselves up. Although with Hoop Dreams, both of the mothers, the boys were right there. I mean, in, in Hoop Dreams, you see us meet Arthur on a basketball court. He's 14 years old, and a scout picks him out and points him out to us. And he went home to his mother and said, hey, these guys want to make a movie about me, and they're going to come over tomorrow to meet you and see if you, you know, going to give you permission. And she was like, oh, yeah, right. You know, I mean, she was just thought he was making it all up. Uh, but she did say to us, and William's mother did too, it took about a year before they really trusted us and to build that trust. And so sometimes to get to the next level, you really have to let, and you have to let people know who you are. You have to kind of open up and be honest about what it is that you're doing and who you are. And I, I sometimes see people who are like trying to work a, cross-culturally, and they're pretending to be of a culture or of a thing that they're not. And I always advise people, be who you are and let people know who you are, and that can really help people to trust you. Has that been an issue working across culturally, you know, like with, it, I mean, it, looking at hoop dreams it, and... Um... It's often, it is a culture, I mean, it is a, a challenge, and it's very important in our industry today, and I know it's going on here in Australia, too, the whole question of who gets to tell whose stories. And one of the things we did at Cartemquin, we've now evolved from when we were reading the Red Book and, you know, going to make the revolution, and we've gone through several changes. Now we're a full-blown media arts organization. We have a board of directors. Uh, Jolene Pinder has come from New Orleans. She headed the New Orleans Film Festival. She's our new ED. And we um, have instituted programs, really, 
uh, we have our Diverse Voices in Docs programs, and several of the films that we're releasing this year are by people who came out of that program, which started eight years ago. So we're trying to change the landscape by empowering filmmakers to, to you know, and, and it's kind of a digression, but when we first created Diverse Voices in Docs eight years ago, um, we were porting over our intern workshops about camera, about editing, about directing and fundraising and other aspects of, everyone does a two-hour workshop with, with the interns. And we surveyed that first cohort. And they said, you know, we can learn a lot from you about editing or camera work, but we've been to film school, many of us. We shoot, we edit, that's not what we need. What we need to know is what you know, which is how do you make somebody believe that you're the person to make this film and that they will fund you. And so we completely rework the curriculum to be much more about log lines, clarity of thinking and of idea so that when you pitch your film, people really are gonna, you know, whoa, that's a story. Uh, so often people start off with what I call a subject. You know, I want to make a film about homeless people. It's like, homeless people don't have a name. They don't look like something. Tell me a story about a person. And we actually did, I never thought we would do something, but we did uh, a film uh, with a couple of filmmakers actually out of New York, and we had a very long, uh, what we call the courtship, to find out if they were serious, and, and they made a film about homeless high school students in Chicago called The Homestretch. Uh, and so I forgot where I was going with that, but that, that is, that's a really important question. And it's a question I always ask filmmakers. Uh, you know, what makes you think you have the right to tell these people's stories? And I think it relates to some of the opening remarks also. And what I want is not some glib answer. What I want is the understanding which the guys who made Hoop Dreams had when they walked in, they had asked themselves that question. They knew the question was relevant and had to be asked. Um, and so I think as an industry, we are all confronting the, the kind of questions of what kind of things can we do to make our field more inclusive. I think it's ultimately, we, I think we can work cross-culturally. Uh, the New Americans, even Rene, who did the Mexican story, is of Japanese descent, and she didn't even speak Spanish, her, her uh, producer. Vanji Greco, who was from Spain, she spoke Spanish. And yet they really managed to connect with that family and tell that story. So I think the question's relevant, but it doesn't mean that we have to, you know, have these rigid boundaries and say you can't, can't work cross-culturally. And I think we as an industry have to really meet the challenge of bringing people who have been excluded for reasons of patriarchy, for reasons of racism, uh, you know, all of our, the history that our two countries uh, share about a kind of white supremacy, uh, that what is it structurally, what are the real things that we can do that change the mix of who's making films? And some of the films that we have coming out uh, this year are a consequence of some of those programs where I'm like, gee, it actually kind of worked. So I think that's um, a good a good point to sort of launch into the next um, 
clip and the film, which is uh, somebody who came out of the Diverse Voices program um, and made Minding the Gap, which probably a lot of you are familiar with. It was um, a, quite a remarkable film. Can you just give, uh, give a little bit of context about that and then we'll, we'll watch the clip and um, then we can talk a little bit about that. So Bing, uh, he actually found out about us. Bing was working as an assistant camera in the union. And he started filming because he was filming skateboarding. And then he realized he wanted to make this his career. And a, a colleague of ours in the camera union told him about our Diverse Voices program, and he came into it. And again, like so many documentaries, it was a different film when he started. He was doing a survey film going around the country filming these incredible young men who skateboard and you know showing kind of this really exceptional skateboarding footage you know i was like whoa you know and talking to them about their different difficult family relationships and particularly their tensions with their fathers and he was looking at kind of toxic masculinity in that in that culture and over the years that he worked on the film, little by little he realizes, okay, maybe I should make it in my hometown of, of Rockford, this kind of Rust Belt uh, city outside of Chicago with, with uh, you know, where the industries have left, and about his friends. And he's a wonderful writer, and I would read his, his pieces. And in his writing, he would talk about the monster, but he never said what it was, the, you know, what, what's he referring to? And um, I think it's in the clip that we're going to yeah, show. Yeah, let's, let's watch the yeah, clip. Let's yeah, let's watch the clip because this is the moment when the film really shifted. Zach and I went to court for child support. And you know, it was like one of those moments where I was just like, wow, like, what am I doing with my life? You know, in, on one hand of my brain, I'm like, you shouldn't be around your kid ever. Like, you, like, you fucking suck. And then on the other hand, I'm like, no, like, this is my child. Happy Father's Day. I hope you all get to spend some time with your fathers. The last time I talked to my dad, I argued and fought with him. I moved out the next day. The, uh, the last time I came here, it was his funeral. You don't want to think about it. If you think about him, you get angry, right? Not necessarily. I get, I feel like shaky and anxious and I don't, I don't really think about him that much. If you try to don't think about it, that, I don't think that's going to work. I've never been able to deal with myself because I'm so busy. I'm not even convincing other people. I'm convincing myself that I'm a good person or I feel like the clown. Almost, you know, you paint up your face and you put on your act for everybody. And you let that act become you. I 
I've always been something to someone. You know, I was someone's daughter, someone's sister, someone's significant other, and then someone's mom. <laughs> so it's like I never got that chance to just like figure myself out. I really wish I fucking just could remember where it is. It's like, it would like make this day a lot better for me. I don't want my son. I just don't want him to grow up, you know, like fucked up like me, you know? <clears throat> Can't let myself think that the reason I have to struggle so hard is because I fucking suck. I can't, you know, that's what the drinking is about. That's, that's what it's all about. I just want to hide. I just want to run away. I wish then it's, uh, I could do over. I don't get up here with Zampan. It's such a crushing, a hopeless feeling. Just sucks knowing that you're your own enemy. That every decision you ever made has culminated in how shitty your life is now. And there's no escaping it. I don't know. If I, I try to help you. If you wanted to get fail do anything, you think that help you heal, that's fine. You cannot change past. Well, the reason why I wanted to make this film was maybe I'm maybe you're right. Maybe I'm I need to just move on and not dwell on the past. I wish you could. Okay, make you feel better, that's fine. I cut. Right, I forgot we were going to show this clip. Uh, but this is a great uh, example of where Bing's arc took him to where he does finally confront his mother and confront about the abuse that happened to him from his, his stepfather. And it's I mean, I, I kind of laughed when I saw it. He shot this whole movie virtually without a light. It's verite, you know, and all of a sudden he's going to interview his mother and he's barricaded behind, you know, one of our filmic setups with the soft lights and everything. And it's just so evocative of what is actually happening in, in that scene uh, that it, it, it's just kind of incredible, but he went from, and the scene earlier in the film, he's interviewing Kier, uh, and Kier is talking about being uh, beaten up. He says it's, it's, they call it child abuse now, about being physically uh, beaten by his father. And Bing says, you know, did you cry? And Kier says, uh, I, everybody cries. Didn't you cry? And Bing says, yeah, I cried. And that was when we were kind of in the editing room, you know, it was like, wait, that's when he started to talk about what had happened to him and started to put that into the movie. And it was that abuse that happened to him which was the monster that he had been writing about. And I later found out, before the film was finished, that he had been pretty much in therapy. He was smart enough that he knew he was on a journey where he was going to need that kind of support through the process. Is that something you do as a producer, trying to get the uh, filmmakers to really tap into their own... 
personal relationship with the, the subject matter? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes people, uh, particularly when it's uh, like a, a first film or something that they're passionate about, they need someone to bounce their ideas off and sometimes push them a little bit. In Finding Yingying, the film, another uh, person who came out of our Diverse Voices, and it's going to open it at South By. And she came to me early on in the process, and she was very concerned because it's about a murdered Chinese student who's very much like her. The parents, they, she at this point, they don't know what happened to her. She just disappeared. The parents have come to America. And she's, she's their lifeline. She's their translator. They're looking at her, and they're seeing their daughter. They're seeing someone who went to the same university in Peking. She's like their daughter. She's studying in America. And so, that, you know, she was like, am I exploiting them? What, you know, she had these real, and I said, Jenny, you know, we, we talked for about an hour, you're asking all the right questions. There are no easy answers, but I feel very confident in that you're gonna find your way through this because you're, you're concerned about the right things. And it was a long journey with that family. And as the story took off and as the horror of the crime came out, ABC and other companies were coming in and trying to approach the family. And at one point, she lost her access. But in fact, she had an underlying connection to them that was on a solid ground. And ultimately, we made the film that nobody else could have made. Just want to talk about um, Minding the Gap and working with Hulu and the streamers and um I guess your experience and how that's, that's worked uh, and what's come out of it. Well, we, you know, we, we went to Sundance with Mining a Gap and like Hoop Dreams, the film just, you know, it took off. It, it was getting a lot of attention. And we already had money from POV, was the first funder, uh, Justine Nagin, who's now the executive director of POV, had been Cartemquin's first executive director when we moved to the media arts. She went, in eight years, she went from intern to ED. Um, and we also had ITVS money. And what was happening in the States, and there'd really been some ugly situations where Netflix, the streamer, would come in and say, oh, well, we want to film, and we'll just buy public television out. And it was difficult, some, you know, because the public television doesn't want to stand between the filmmaker and their payday. Uh, at the same time, they really want the film, and they were there before anybody else. You know, Hulu saw the film at Sundance, you know? And so when they came to us, we said, and Tim tells me to stop telling this story because he says it's not a model. It's not necessarily going to happen going forward. But we said to Hulu, um, you're going to have to work it out with public television. We are not going to go to them and say, you know, we want you to sell all the rights. It's going to have to be broadcast. And it was a very long and complicated, painful, you know, about whose credit goes first and blah, 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 blah. All of that stuff had to be worked out. But it did work out. And the film was broadcast on POV. It was on Hulu when the Academy Award nomination happened. Hulu was incredibly supportive and really made a difference. Or, you know, I mean, when we had before the nomination, when we had a shot, Hulu really helped uh, with that. And Hulu has now come on board. We announced it at Sundance this year. You know, people people often say to me, "Well, when you fight, like we've had big battles with public." 
funders over the years. Uh, was part of the group that created ITVS. We've battled many times with public entities, and, and they say, oh, well, you know, aren't, what about your career? What's going to happen? I say, you know, you'd never, you'd, it's, you fight those fights, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. We won a lot, and they still will come back to you because what you do is of value. And don't worry about that. Don't worry about the consequences of taking a principled stand. Sometimes it costs you and you go wind up going somewhere else. And so Hulu is now, we have the Hulu, I think it's called the Accelerator Fund, and they're going to be funding so that they get a first look at some of the projects coming out of our Diverse Voices program. And so little by little, I actually believe that you have a responsibility and you can change the industry that you're in to reflect the values that you, you know, you're never gonna control it, but if you fight those battles, little by little you can make it better. We had a huge battle a few years ago when they were gonna try to move POV and independent lens to a night that we all knew would be, they knew would be the kiss of death. Uh, the local stations would stop carrying them and it would be all over. And we basically had to organize our field and huge, uh, ran a huge battle and they backed down. We won. Um, so I just want to, like, uh, just, we've only got a few minutes left, so if there's any questions, just um, dial them in. And um, just talking about, like, the, the, how Katem Quinn is structured now and the, the funding models and where the money comes from, the importance of the board and and these kind of things? We, we are raising more private money than we ever raised in the past, and there's this new thing that I know that's being talked about here too, which is equity funding, people coming in. Uh, we actually are trying to reframe that because people who come into a film, even uh, the film about Roger Ebert, which, you know, yes, that could make money, but I wanted to make sure the equity investors understood this is don't put your money in here if you think you're gonna make money. You have to be prepared to lose that money. Um, and so we're trying to, in some ways, reframe it and say, you know, this would be better if you gave us a, the film a grant, you get your tax write-off, you know, and that's simpler and cleaner. But there still is that whole world of equity funding. And the board helps to raise money for the organization and for all the programs that we have that are supporting developing the next generation of filmmakers, because that's one of our key core values now. Uh, but we are very much like a traditional media arts organization. Um, and, you know, it's, who knows where we'll be over the next 50 years. I think if we don't change, if you don't, uh, I like to say we're about the same size we were when we were a collective. I like to claim that we defeated capitalism. We didn't grow and we didn't die. Uh, so part of our board keeps saying, how can we, re you know, they want to, they come from a more corporate background and they're saying, we have to recreate this all over America. And I'm like, let's just calm down. Maybe what we want to do is support other regional organizations that are trying to do what we do. We don't need to do it. We need to just connect with other people out in the field. And that's how also we're working with these emerging uh, organizations of people of color who are coming, coming together, forming their own organizations. And we're like, great, how can we help you as an organization be more effective to reach some of these goals that we all share? So do you think the role of the producer has changed um, sort of in this 
time and what what do you see it as, as now sort of going forward you, you've touched on a little bit but just yeah I mean I think you know the role of the producer is in a sense I think I've always seen it in a similar way it's trying to get help a, a filmmaker get to the heart of the story uh, years ago I was producing and directing, making my own films. I still occasionally make a film, but I really see my role now as working with other filmmakers and helping them to realize their vision. Something that's happening in the US, which I don't know if it's a, an issue here really, there's a group called the DPA, the Documentary Producers Association, and they've really gotten together and, and, you know, and I understand this. I've been at festivals as a director where you're like a god, and I've been there as a producer, and they don't even invite you to lunch. You know, it's like, it's really an issue, and the producers have gotten together and say, we are creative producers, we are part of this team, and we want respect. And so I think that's one of the new battles that's gonna be, uh, be fought out. I think that sometimes something we do, and I see my role sometimes, is Diane Kwan, who, uh, she produced Mining the Gap, she produced Finding Ying Ying, she had produced one of Maria Finitsu's early, early films, and she's been around Cartempo, and she's older and more experienced. And Diane actually came to me and she said, I see you've got, uh, you know, Bing Lu, he's, he's Chinese, I'm Chinese, I wanna work with him, you know, and so you make a marriage, you know, and I, I think that's a part of executive producing, sort of realizing, oh, that'll, that'll be a great team. Matchmaking. Um, so just, we've got about a minute left. Is there anything, um, any final thoughts you could sort of leave? You, I know you've been talking to people here. Um, you met with a lot of producers yesterday. Um, is there any final thoughts you have about the Australian sort of I mean, I, I think one of the things that, that I see here and want to figure out how we can get more of that in the US, and I know you've got your own struggles here, but I feel that documentary storytelling, the kind of stories we tell, play a critical role in the, uh, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Democracy, uh, in the democratic process. When Hoop Dreams was being released, our PR people took me aside and they say, uh, we really want you to stop using the D words. And I was like, what are you talking about? He says, you talk about democracy and you talk about documentary. Those are both the kiss of death. We don't want you to say anything about any of that. But I really do think that the two words go together and it, it's really important to figure that out. And that the battle to make the state understand that what we do is a part of the democratic process when, you know, it's not like, oh, it's an extra. It's not like, oh, it's just something nice or entertainment. No, it's a part of what we as a democracy have to be involved in this kind of storytelling. And so I know I see the battle for keeping that little sliver of public funding that we have helps to keep the industry honest. The other thing that I heard a couple people mention in my meetings with them, and they said, well, we have almost our whole budget together and now we're gonna start, you know? And we, of course, don't have that luxury. But what we do get from having multiple sources of funding, when your funding comes from a lot of different people, you 
you have final creative control. You're, no one can say to you, you have to change that. That one film where we took the money and I said we got it done in less than a year, it was Vietnam, long time coming, and I was like, okay, we, I could see it on paper, we don't have final cut. What problem could I have with this film? I didn't see an issue. Well, there was an issue, and we, we were forced to take something out of the film, and it was, it's a, very proud of the film, it's a good film, but it's not the film it might have been with that key scene that had to do with race. And so, those kind of questions we all struggle with all the time. So I wandered around there, but. So we're out of time, but Gordon's gonna be around the conference and he's very friendly and approachable. So um, I'm offering you up for people sure. to come and ask all the, all the questions that you think of or feedback or you know, advice from or anything from your long illustrious career. So um, can everybody join me in thanking Gordon Quinn?